Let's pray together. Father, we do indeed ask that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. I'll do sit down, uh, my friends, please. And keep your Bibles open. We're looking at Psalm 132, which we've just had read out for us. Psalm 132. Now, perhaps uh, you've been in a situation a bit like this. You have made some plans. Maybe they were dinner plans. And you put something in the oven to cook that evening. And you had guests invited, and they're very special guests. And whatever you cooked turned out to be a disaster. Or perhaps you've gone out for dinner. You were going out for dinner with some friends. You've gone to a restaurant. And your perfect meal, this is why you went to this restaurant. You had gone there for your, um, the thing you most like to eat. Um, a Big Mac, <laughs> pate foie gras, I, I, I don't know, um, but it's not on the menu anymore, and your plans have to change. You go to the refrigerator, you get out a different meal because you had burnt what was in the oven, you go to a different restaurant, your, your plans change, this is fine, it's a little disappointing, but... The best laid, the well-known poem, the best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. This is life. We know that uh, in the natural course of events, uh, even the best laid plans are not always fulfilled and do not always come about as we had expected. We know this is true for small things like dinner plans. We know it is true for bigger things. Sometimes. We make plans as a student that we will get a certain job and then have a certain career. But actually, as we look back on our life, we find that our life followed a rather different direction. And, uh, well, I suppose it's okay. We're not sure we like it, but maybe we, we trust that God knows best. That's a little more difficult. But we acknowledge that our plans are not his plans, our ways are not his ways. And we trust that uh, the way our life has come about so far is, is, is good, is better than we had planned. Sometimes we make plans and uh, they're small things that do not come about. Sometimes they're bigger things, which can be a little more difficult. But even then we know that the best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. This is life. We are humans. We cannot perfectly predict the future. The best mathematical equations that predict when earthquakes are going to take place can be wrong. We understand this. But what about it's not your plans? What, what about if you feel that something has not taken place that was promised to you by God? It's actually a far from uncommon experience pastorally. I've often talked to people with some scenario like this. It's a 
fairly inoffensive kind of scenario, so let me just paint it for you. There's a, a boy dating a girl, and at some point or other it doesn't work out, and yet the, the, the boy feels that this was promised, that it's not one of those freak show events where he went up to a girl who he had never met before and said, God has told me I'm going to marry you. Not that, but pious, well-meaning, godly plans uh, that, that, as I paint this picture, they had prayed about it. They had felt that God was in this relationship. They had um, read texts of the Bible as they were praying about it, and they seemed to confirm that this was God's, God's plan. And yet, as I paint this common enough scenario, and you can extrapolate from the dating relationship to other kinds of feelings that God had promised something that did not happen. And yet, though they had prayed, though they had studied the Bible, though they had felt God was in this, did not happen. What do you do then? Well, actually, uh, of course, you go back to the Bible and you trust God and His promises and all of that, but how do you get there? Well, this psalm can help us with, with getting there. So as you look down with me at, at the psalm, and as you remember, as we had it read out, you may have uh, realized that uh, the psalm seems at first glance to be a little rambling, and it's like listening to someone who's very excited about something which you don't feel excited about. They're sort of jumping up and down in exuberance, but you're not quite sure why, perhaps. It, it, is, a, it is a structurally difficult psalm, but it's, when you really get it, it's great, because it helps you with this issue of when you think God's plans might fail. And I think the way into it is really by the four times repeated name of David. David, of course, is one of the great heroes of the Bible. He uh, is one of the most well-known figures in the Bible. Everyone's heard of King David. And what this psalm is doing is it's urging us to think about David, to use the lens of what we know about David to see God's covenant promise about where he dwells, that is, where, what he has truly promised, and therefore understand how to deal with um, that sense of disappointment, perhaps. And you see, it's structured fairly simply, actually, when you get it. So first of all, you have what David said to God. This is introduced for us in the first couple of verses. He swore an oath to God, and then it's, it records what he said to God. And then you have in the middle section, which is the most important section, verses 10 to 12, uh, you have what well, the Lord swore an oath to David, what God said to David, what David said to God, what God, though, said to David. And they were not the same, um, and the difference is significant, what, what God said to David. And then the last section, where David's name is brought in as the finale, verses 17 and 18, I'll 
I'll, make, I'll clothe his enemies with shame. I, I'll, I'll make a horn grow for David, the anointed one. Uh, this, this, these pictures of success around David. So the psalmist is saying, when you're in that kind of situation, think about David. Now, you may say to yourself, is this really what this psalm is about? I think so. So you get the hardships. Now, we need to think about what those hardships are at the beginning. But to really understand how this psalm is positioned to help us with this issue of when, God's, when you think God's plans might fail, you've got to understand some of the context, some of the background. So remember with me that we're in a series of the Psalms of Ascents. So look down at your Bibles and this, this series begins at Psalm 120, doesn't it? We're in 132 and the series ends in 134. So we're getting towards the end. And they're called Ascents, these Psalms, because they're ascending. Now exactly what they're, how that ascending idea works, scholars are not sure. There are different ideas. There, there, there's an ascending pattern in the, each of the psalms. Um, they may have been singing these psalms on the steps, uh, perhaps, uh, of the temple, some think. But they're certainly ascending, getting closer to Jerusalem. Some of these psalms are written a long time before the event, which I think Psalm 132 is responding to. But as a collection of psalms, it's perfectly possible that they were first um, given the emotional depth that we experience now when we read them, when they were ascending, coming back from Babylon, from exile. And so they get to Jerusalem, and they sing this psalm about where God dwells. And how there will be a son of David forever on the throne. <laughs> and there's the, there is the temple. No, the temple's not there. It's destroyed. You see echoes of these psalms of ascents often in Ezra and Nehemiah. They pick up the theme of them as they come back from exile and attempt to rebuild what they thought God had promised. What do you do when you think God's plans might fail? What this psalm says is think about David in three ways. What David said to God, what God said to David, uh, what David said to God, the imperfectly located confidence. It's good confidence, and we'll consider that, but it's imperfect. What God said to David, the, the perfectly, the properly, perhaps better put, the properly located confidence and then what will come as a result? Not the irrational exuberance of pretending that everything's going to be all right when really it is not, but the true joy that comes when you locate your confidence in God's word and the covenant and the promise. Think about David, it says, three ways. First, what David said to God. Now, this is the first uh, nine verses, of course, beginning at verse 1. And there is some great confidence here in what David says, though it is imperfectly located. So the psalmist says, God, remember uh, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. The hardships there is not talking about him going to a cave or the battle wounds or that sort of thing. It's talking about verse 2. That is, 
his commitment, his determination, the cost to make um, the kingdom of God move forward, his determination to, as it says in verse 3, this is what David said to God, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I am not going to go to sleep. Perhaps a little exaggeration, but a commitment. He is like an incoming senator to D.C. that brings his bed with him to the office. He's not going to go home. He's not going to have an easy life. He's going to make this happen. It's a model for us in some ways, though it is imperfectly located, his confidence at this point. What does he want to make happen? He says, uh, verse 5, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, Jacob comes in there. He is picked among other heroes in the Old Testament, I think, particularly because Jacob is the sort of hero for the macho man who struggles with God and overcomes. And David is saying he's going to be like that. He's going to make this thing happen. What is this thing? Well, it's the temple. You see, the background to this is Second Samuel 6 and 7. David is uh, ascending to his throne. He is bringing the ark into Jerusalem. He tries first, doesn't succeed, tries again, does succeed. He's determined. He brings the ark into Jerusalem, the ark that had been captured by the Philistines, then released, but then for a long time been in a place called Kiriath-Jerim, which is what verse 6 is referring to. We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. These are uh, sort of nicknames, well-known nicknames it would have been for them of this location where the ark was for a while. He brought this up to Jerusalem. And then he says, and again this happens in Second Samuel chapter 7, he says to Nathan the prophet and determines inside, it's that kind of vow, that kind of commitment. We should be slow to make vows to God, we're told. This is a sort of commitment. He's going to do it. He's going to build the temple. And yet, verses 8 and 9, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, a phrase that comes from Moses, which he said every morning when God's people were wandering in the desert. Arise, O Lord. And yet, you and the ark of your might, and yet, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Those verses are almost a direct quotation from Solomon praying when the temple was actually built. So what we have here is this desire, this commitment that is a model for us. And I want to present it to you as a model, but it's imperfectly located. Let me just present it to you as a model briefly because I I don't think he's rebuked. It's not a sinful desire. It's a good desire, but it's not yet zeal with perfect knowledge. But there is that model of determination here, isn't there? I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. It reminds me of the story of D.L. Moody. No relation, by the way. I can tell the story. Uh, He, one time, uh, he had committed, D.L. Moody, that every day he would tell someone about Jesus. It was his vow, if you like. Every day, I'm going to tell someone about Jesus. And one time, he'd 
He was almost going to sleep and he realized he had not that day. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. And he looked out the window and of course being Chicago it was raining. (laughs) And uh, he uh, saw there was a man standing with an umbrella in the rain. D.L. Moody rushed downstairs, stood with the man under the umbrella and said to him something like, you have a shelter against the rain? Do you have a shelter against the coming wrath of God? This is a model of devotion. And maybe part of what this message is to you is just saying, look, there is a time when to make this ministry move forward, to, to grow this church, you need to say, under God, with the zeal he provides, it's going to be hardship for me. But I, uh, David built up these enormous resources financially that he just gave to Solomon to build the temple. Uh, David committed to do this, did not, you know, exaggeration, but I'm not going to, I'm going to get up early to read my Bible. Is a model. And yet our zeal needs to be with knowledge. So let's move on to the, the second section, verses 10 to 12, which is the real heart of the passage. And so we've had what David said to God, a model but imperfectly uh, located understanding of what God's covenant is. And then here we have what God says to David. So it says here, doesn't it, for the sake of your servant David, here's David again. Uh, the MVP of the, uh, of the Israelite community, the great hero. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Anointed one, of course, is Messiah, Christ, the King, anointed. The Lord swore to David, here's what, David's, uh, what God said to David, a sure oath from which he, he will not turn back. There's a lovely little cadence here between the prayer, do not turn away the face, and he will not turn back in the original there. Lovely little reflection. Do not turn away, he will not turn away. What did God say to David? David had wanted to build a temple, and then you find this also in the second part of Second Samuel 7, and it's summarized here. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. David, you want to build me a house? But David, I want to build you a household, a lineage. If your sons keep my covenant, uh, there is uh, a need for those who followed in David's line to be on the train of God's covenant, to, to be in it and committed to it. And yet God's will and his purpose will prevail despite what we read about some of their sins If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also, here's what God says to David, forever shall sit on your throne. There you are, you've come to the temple and it's ruined. And you're saying to yourself, hey, but God, what did you say to David? Forever shall sit on your throne. 
So it's very, very important that our zeal comes with as much biblical knowledge and understanding as we can get. There's been a rather silly little example just this week, hasn't there? You know what I mean? The world did not end. Uh, prediction that it would on Saturday. Uh. <laughs> but uh, I, I suspect none of you were taken in by that, but the, uh, the promise that if you do certain things, then you will be healthy and wealthy. Probably none of you at College Church are taken in by that, but the desire to believe great things for God and attempt great things for God, the zeal. And yet even the Billy Grahams of this world must look at some of the promises of God. If, if you are abiding in me, you shall bear much fruit. Shall, must look at some of the promises of God of, of incredible joy. Forever you will sit on the throne, one of David's descendants. And where is that fulfilled? Well, of course, you know, don't you? The anointed one, Messiah, Christ. Think about David. Think about where all this covenant train is going. David, the name of David, is mentioned 58 times in the New Testament. Think about David. One of the great titles for Jesus, of course, is Jesus, son of David. In other words, of all this devotion, with all this desire for God, to actually put that fulfillment in Jesus, who died and rose again and ascended on high, and to believe that God's plans then did not fail, will not fail. That his desire for you is in relation to him, Jesus. To not doubt God when your desire for something that is related to God does not happen. A good thing. But to see what God has underwritten with his own vow, his own covenant, that is one of your sons shall sit on your throne forever and ever. And realize that God is faithful. Of course, there's great fruit that comes from that. It's not just saying, you know, there's Jesus, and, but there's fruit that comes from that. There are results that come from that. So what David said to God, what God said to David, and then finally, what will come as a result? The imperfect the imperfectly located confidence of David, the properly located confidence in God's Word, to know God's Word, to believe God's Word, to read God's Word, to listen to what God's covenant is really about, that is fulfilled in Jesus. What will come as a result? We'll look at verses 13 to 18. It couldn't get better than this. 
For the Lord has chosen Zion. So they're saying, well, if the temple's destroyed, where will God dwell? Think about David. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Very strong language from God. I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. A little fulfillment of that you'll find in Acts chapter 2 where it says about the New Testament church that there were no poor among them. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. The salvation fulfilled in Jesus, now goes to the ends of the earth, the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Here it is. There, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. The church. The, uh, where does God dwell? Well, John chapter 1, Jesus God has tabernacled, he has dwelt among us in Jesus. Where does God dwell? The church, the body of Christ. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, the Messiah Christ. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. It's here. It's here, and yet not fully. Uh, Yes, we do have joy of salvation. Yes, we have abundant blessing as we remain in Jesus as a part of the true vine. Uh, Yes, we, we look after those around us. We fulfill the love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Yes, we have all of that, and yet not fully. And so there is a longing here for a, a further horizon. We read it together at the beginning of the service. Now the dwelling of God is with his people. When is that? The dwelling. Think about David. It's in the new heaven and the new earth. That's where it is. And what will happen there? Right at the end of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, I'm coming soon. I, Jesus, he says, the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. Dwelling of God with his people forever. See, it's this trajectory that you need to have when you're thinking about, oh, I prayed about this. I I thought there was a text somewhere in the Bible that told me this would happen. And uh, I've devoted to do this like David, and that's a good thing. Yet it hasn't happened as I predicted. What you need is the trajectory of God's promise that it is better. Not a house, David. An eternal lineage. Perhaps not what you had so desired but something far, far better in God's people now to some extent. In the new heaven and earth where God will dwell with his people, Jesus, the offspring of David. 
When you get that, here's what it does. It enables you to say, I'm not going to enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes to have that kind of devoted commitment because you know where the story is going. Just as we close, one final illustration uh, that uh, relates to this uh, illustration goes back to when I was at Cambridge as an undergraduate. Uh, At Cambridge, there are many, you probably know, there are many different colleges. So Cambridge is really a collection of colleges. And we had an organization there that was involved with doing Christian work in those different colleges. And there was one college that at the time we were particularly concerned about. It seemed like it was the least thriving spiritually. And so we were strategizing together and, and, and praying and thinking about what to do about this. And being very busy, uh, you know, studying hard and as well as involved in this particular organization, I decided that, that one thing at least I could do was to change the way I walked to the library so that every day... I walked through this particular college, and that would be a memory jog to me as I walked through the college to pray for it. So I did that every day. And at the end of that year, no change at all. (laughs) So, of course, I'm thinking, well, you know, I could have had another half an hour in the library. I mean... I mean, this is every day for a year. I mean, this is, you know, it seemed a lot to me. Came back to Cambridge five years or so later. (laughs) What do you know? That college is one of the strongest Christian groups in the university. Now, it's not just my prayers. I'm sure we we are all concerned. We're all praying. And it may now be the weakest again. You know, who knows? These things come in cycles. But if you have this trajectory of where all of this in the end is going, you will never come to church and say to yourself, I've given so much to God, but it hasn't worked. Because you will know there is a far horizon. You will know where that train is ending in the city of God. And with that in mind, you'll be able to say, you know, I'm going to jump on board. I'm going to be committed to Christ. I'm going to be a part of this movement because I know where it's going. Would you do that? Would you make that kind of commitment this morning? Would you have the David-like discernment as well as the David-like devotion Would you listen to God's word? Would you commit to him? And would you look at the far horizon? Let's pray together. We thank you, uh, Lord, that we do have a sure and certain word, a, a covenant promise that is true. We confess before you that many times we wonder. We wonder how you're going to bring about what you have said that you will bring about. Yet we thank you for the wonderful presence of your spirit in the body of Christ. The sense that you are here this morning.
the token of a far greater dwelling to come. Father, help us to be like David in that devotion, to commit everything to the cause of God, to be all in with the knowledge that God has made a covenant that is fulfilled here and in a further horizon and that, uh, Father, your God, your plans never fail. Help us to study your word and uh, understand what you're saying in your word about Jesus and have a renewed love for him and his work this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.